Thank you, Frank. And uh, also, just uh, I'll uh, extend my thanks to you for making time to come out. I mean, there are a trillion different things that any one of us can do on a beautiful fall afternoon. And the fact that you're here and our fellows are here. No one's keeping score, but you're a little late, fellows. Um, Uh, I actually mean that from the heart, because uh, who... No, I don't mean that from the heart. I mean the, the other thing from the heart. Oh, Dr. Freud. Uh, so, there are a trillion different things. It's beautiful outside, and then here you are, and here. And uh, that, that just means the world. And again, we, we thank the Advent, uh, Frank, and uh, all the staff for uh, opening us, uh, up, this up to us so beautifully. And it's such a pleasure. To, to be back and to be connecting with so many people and to meet so many new people and uh, and if um, I felt la- last night if Frank if it, you're only as good as uh, your last talk then uh, based on the reaction from last night I'm in okay shape but the scorekeeper says well here's a chance to really screw it up uh, this morning grace rest and the end of scorekeeping and last night And what I would say about, I'm not going to try to give a recap, last night we talked about why we always lose when we keep score. Why when we enter the grid of of good or bad at all, even if you're totally good, you've already lost because you're on that grid, which uh, ends in a a body blow uh, to uh, us and kills us. And I would say just do, do visit the Mockingbird Website. You'll be able to hear all the talks and all the devotions from the weekend. But then, more than that, you, you just get this incredibly rich, delicious array of uh, the intersection of reality with reality. The intersection of the gospel uh, with, uh, with, with media, with the world of high culture, low culture, broad culture. And it seems to me that um, what we're all about is seeing uh, gospel truth rise up in an uncoerced way in the world from Seinfeld, from parenthood, as we're going to see today, from a T.S. Eliot, from non-Christian sources, which speaks to me of the Catholic nature of God's kingdom, small c Catholic, that God is at work. He's present. It's not on the shoulders of the church. That God is at work everywhere. And when you see these these, uh, gospel truths rise up from sources that are are unexpected, to me it is an extraordinarily comforting witness to God's work in the world and allows us in a a humorous and um, non-defensive way as, as Christians to just engage with what God is already doing. So, so do visit the Mockingbird website uh, regularly. Rich, rich stuff. So today I do want to talk about this idea of the end of scorekeeping. And we talked about the law being the scorekeeper last night, and then Grace comes in and says, game over. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the foolish wisdom of God's grace. I started thinking about the whole concept of scorekeeping when I took my son Rob, who was born here, and he's nine now, to see the Harlem Globetrotters last spring uh, at the John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville. And as I'm sure you know, the Globetrotters are, are, are a mix of dazzling 
athletic ability with this outrageous Three Stooges slapstick humor. You know, the Globetrotters always play the Washington Generals, but, but mostly they just play with each other. And they play with the referees, and they play, they toy with the, the generals, and then they love to play with the kids and the older people in the crowd. And as they play this four-quarter basketball game, there's plenty of silly interruptions, and there is a scoreboard. And there's an announcer who periodically announces a score, but no one pays attention to the score. Of course, the Globetrotters almost always beat the generals, but nobody cares, really about the score, especially the Globetrotters. They're way too busy having fun. They're way too busy making sure that the crowd is having fun, too. And can you imagine a parade? (laughs) Can you imagine a life lived without the tyranny of a scoreboard? Can you imagine a life lived without the tyranny of a scoreboard? was at a funeral reception a few weeks ago for a funeral I did for a woman, wonderful woman. She was 102 when she died. And her 95-year-old younger brother was there and had sort of was beginning to slip into dementia. Uncle Boo was his name. And Christy was sitting on the couch through the whole reception just talking to Boo. And Boo was having a wonderful time sitting there kind of looking around. And at one point Christy said, uh, Boo said, you know, I'd be having a whole lot more fun if I knew where I was and how I got here. (laughs) You know, I'm not so sure, actually. It was a sister who died, and, you know, sometimes you don't know, you don't want to know where you are, and you sure don't know, want to know how you got there. A life without the tyranny of the scoreboard. You know, can you imagine a marriage in which uh, words and glances and things left unsaid don't exhume past grievances and wounds that are, of course, not past at all? Can you imagine a world in which Faulkner's famous quote would find no footing, the past is not dead, In fact, it's not even past. Can you imagine a working world in which you do what you want to do instead of what you think you should do or what you think others think you should do? Can you imagine a world in which your inner voice of condemnation Do more, be better, get fitter, be smarter, score higher, be more. Which, by the way, is the advertising slogan for PBS. Be more. Have you ever noticed that? Can you imagine a world where that voice of condemnation is revealed as what it really is? An impotent nobody. An erstwhile threat now stripped of power by the God who was stripped and crucified. By the God in whom we now have no condemnation. What if the be more voice gave way to the voice that says, I am that I am.
In short, can you imagine a world in which nobody, not anyone, not anything, not you, and definitely not God, is keeping score? Can you imagine a world in which the word deserving just doesn't mean anything at all? Now how, I want to ask this morning, could, perchance, this imaginary world come true? Well, I would suggest that there are two ways, and only two ways, and the two ways are interlocking. There are two ways in which the imaginary world breaks in to our world of scorekeeping. And the first way is through love, which, by the way, of course, is just an alias for grace. Love. Mockingbird friend Dorothy Martin, who spoke uh, at our, one of our conferences in New York, is the venerable child psychiatrist. She's in her 80s now, and she imagines such a world, as I've just been describing. She imagines such a world and such a love, and through her long career, has helped others imagine this world too. And she wrote a book called that, Beyond Deserving, which is the, the phrase I've been using. And in that book, she writes, this phrase, beyond deserving, may be a bit puzzling at first glance. After all, the idea of deserving permeates our language. It's taken for granted in much of our daily life, from grades at school to rewards for exceptional performance, such as whether one deserved a gold medal or a Nobel Prize, to our ideas of criminal justice. He got what he deserved, we might say, about some poor wretch sentenced to execution for a foul crime or about a child. It received a humiliating failing grade on an English paper for plagiarizing. Or on the positive side, we might say to a friend, a nice person like you deserves to have such a lovely necklace. And uh, Martin says, my own fascination with the truth that there is something very important beyond our deserving. Began some decades ago when I heard a sermon on the parable of the workers in the vineyard who all received the same pay for, for, from the matter, though some had worked long, some had worked half day, some a short part of the day. The unforgettable gift from that sermon was a new understanding that the major biblical message is about something that cannot be earned, just as Frank said. In this parable, fairness and merit utterly disappear in an inbreaking of a powerful force that transcends deserving altogether. Love, of course. She says, in my decades of working with children and families, the significance of this force has become incarnate before my eyes as I've seen the superior potency of an approach to a misbehaving child that has no element of the this for that implied in it. Thus gradually over the years there grew in my head the following discovery which provides the fundamental thesis for this beyond deserving book. And this is the love that breaks in that makes the imaginary world the real world for us. Parental love and by extension mentoring love and all love is authentic and effectual in proportion to the degree that it transcends the commonly assumed principle of the circular exchange. We said that law is a closed circle. 
that is to say that this for that. All true love is a stranger to that kind of thinking. The justice idea of reward according to what is deserved is replaced by the much more powerful force of non-contingent, compassionate alliance. Let me just repeat that phrase. It's a lot of words, but the the concept is so brilliant. Non-contingent, compassionate alliance with the essential personhood of the other. However small that part may appear to be against the destructive forces opposing that person's good, coming alongside a child, alongside a person, participating with them in the suffering that is theirs, grabbing them with the arms of grace, transporting them to a place that is beyond deserving, walking through with them the forces that would seek to undo them. We're going to see a clip now from the show Parenthood, which to me is a brilliant exemplar of this kind of love, the very inbreaking of compassionate alliance. And in the clip, you will see that the child is misbehaving and that the father uh, attempts to deal with the child Uh, through the right-handed use of the law, trying to fix the child, and then you will see the episode unfold into a climactic scene which will have you reaching for your tissues. Let's go. Let's hit it. Hey, did you brush your teeth? Hey, Max. I think you did. Max. Max, we had a deal, remember? Okay. Regular clothes to school, but the pirate costume at home, okay? I changed my mind. Well, I didn't, okay, so I went Mom to Mom said. Honey, I'm sorry. Mom said. We don't have time to change, okay? I'm sorry. He was sad. Well, he can't keep going to school like that, okay? Kids are going to think he's a freak. How's he going to make any friends? No, I knew kids like that when I was at school. Once you're a freak, you're always a freak. I get it. Believe me, I know. I deal with this every single day, okay? I've tried bribing him, pleading with him, the bugs, buying him bugs and cookies and food. And... Sorry. Okay. Okay. I just want to get him out of that thing. I do too. I love you too. Oh wait, honey, you know, maybe the lessings, but they'll have some ideas. The lessings, is that tonight? Yes, tonight. I told you yesterday, they're really good people. They have a son with Asperger's. Alright, well it's not dinner, is it? No. You remember that time we went over there and they made dinner? Yeah, I'm like, well, They didn't preheat the oven until we'd been there for like three and a half oh, hours. It was I unconscionable. It. I felt honey, like I was being held captive. I say say goodbye. Goodbye. To your son. I know. Goodbye, buddy. I love you. I love you so much, babe. Too. Hey, you know, we don't even know for sure that he has Asperger's. I know. It's not the lesson, kid. I know. All right, Max, I want you to put Charlie away. It's dinner time. A cockroach can live a month without a tip. Okay. Seriously, I'm, I don't have an appetite. Daddy, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. All right, yeah. you know what? Come on. Max, please, eat your food, leave the cockroach alone. I don't like it. Well, how do you know you don't like it if you've never tried it? It's not one of his foods. Hey, Max, sweetheart, you know, maybe you could earn some TV time tonight by trying your food. I get TV after dinner anyway. 
If you don't eat your dinner, then you won't get TV time.
And there's so much potential and hope. So what now? We start to work. He tells us that God uh, says something about his wisdom and that it is foolish in the world's eyes. And that likewise the, the world's wisdom is foolish in God's eyes. And the world's wisdom is this once and forever circular exchange of this for that, a contingent reward or punishment. It is one big existence of scorekeeping. The world's wisdom says, get the pirate costume off him. Once a freak, always a freak. The world's wisdom says, okay, that's the problem, so how do I fix him? So he can enter back into the game. God's wisdom says, it's game over. There is no game to enter back into. Because once the game begins, really, where can the game ever end? Where does the game ever end? Where does it all end? I know young mothers who are agonizing about whether their 18-month-olds will be accepted to the right preschool. Because everyone knows that you've got to get into the right preschool in order to get into the right K-12 prep school in order to get into the right college, in order to get into the right graduate school, in order to make the right salary, in order to meet the right kind of spouse, in order to live in the right kind of house, in order to live in the right kind of neighborhood, in order to join the right kind of club, in order to have the right kind of children, that then you must get into the right kind of preschool. The wheel in the sky keeps on turning, and it doesn't stop until you are buried in the right kind of graveyard. Now, another way to say this is that, um, is that your life, which is composed of scorekeeping, Your life cannot save you. Your life, no matter how good it is and how good life is, life, I love life. But life cannot save you, no matter how high you score. And we need more than just life to save us. This is 
what Robert Capon, our theologian of the weekend, says. The world cannot be saved by living. And there are two devastatingly simple reasons why. The first is we don't live well enough to do the job. Our goodness is flawed. I love my children and you love yours, but we have both of us messed them up royally. I'm a nice person and so are you, except for when my will is crossed and your convenience is not consulted. The world's deepest problem is not badness as opposed to goodness, the whole spectrum of of, of deservedness. It's sin. It's the incurable tendency to put self first, to trust number one and no one else. And that means that there is nothing, no right deed, however good, noble, lawful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, that cannot be done for the wrong reason, that cannot be tainted by sin. We need more than life, more than our life, to save us. So in the truly bizarre logic of God's foolish wisdom, we now see the second way, interlocking with the first, the second way that this imaginary world where there is a, a, a release from the scorekeeping could become real. We see the second way in which this imaginary world of beyond deserving comes true. For God decided that the only thing that could save us was and is death. Death. Life can't. The only thing that can save us is death. The right kind of graveyard, or for that matter, the wrong kind of graveyard is where God will finally declare game over for everyone. I mean, the graveyard is where the whole pointless pantomime of deserving will be exposed for what it is, a game no one can win, a game everyone will lose. As my, uh, as my teenage idol Jim Morrison so aptly said, no one here gets out alive. So in the church... We, have, uh, we actually have a service, a, a, a service, a church service, that tells us this very message that Jim said. And uh, this service has, in my opinion, uh, has been almost uniformly commandeered by kind of liturgical foppery. <laughs> but its core message has never been bettered. And I'm talking about Ash Wednesday. Because Ash Wednesday and all that it represents strips the emperor of self-justifying scorekeeping for all its ridiculous and petty clothes, of all of those clothes. And uh, in this, this, we had a, a parishioner at Christ Church, a Ph.D. student, Deed student who's a, a mock, sometimes mockingbird a contributor, who wrote a brilliant essay I'm going I'm to quote from about this very thing. He says, Ash Wednesday reminds us of the core truth of Christianity. We must give up. Not give up this or give up that. Just give up. Period. We must give up not this habit or that food but, or that particular sin, but the entire project of self-justification. I would even say life. Your life. Give up your life. Of making God's love contingent on our achievements. 
We're reminded both by the words we say and the burned palms and posts on our foreheads that we will all die ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Give up! Give up. For you will not escape death. The entire logic of the theology of glory, which is a this for that, of all our Pelagian impulses, which is a circular exchange, of all human attempts at mastery or control over life, are searched out and stripped away on Ash Wednesday. We are seen for what we are, frail mortals. All power, all money, all self-control, all striving, all efforts at reform cannot permanently forestall our death. Our return to dust is the looming fact of our existence that in our resistance to it provides a template for all the more petty efforts we make to gain control of our lives. It's game over. In fact, the message of Ash Wednesday is indeed the message of Jesus Christ. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Right? And whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it, will save it. Give up. The message, of course, does not stop there. Of course it doesn't. There's resurrection on the other side of death. And although it's true that the train of everyone's life will wreck sooner or later, later there's life, you see, on the other side of the wreckage. And you see, in fact, that your life before the wreckage is pretty much a wreck itself. And that the abundant life about which Jesus Christ speaks is in every case on the other side of the wreck. For although your death and my death, right, make, make, make a mockery of the scoreboard, there is, this is faith. There is and was Another's death that renders all scorekeeping utterly absurd. For Jesus' death on the cross has once and for all justified you, given you the highest score possible, which is an unassailable score, even when the field goal goes right or left. He's still cheering in the stands. Because it is His compassionate alliance with you, and that alone, the only thing that matters. God's compassionate alliance with you. Your life and what you do and what you think and who you are doesn't matter at all. So give up. Because it is His compassionate alliance with you that saves you from a life of scorekeeping. Because he walked up a hill outside of the city gates of Jerusalem and he was dressed in a pirate's costume before it was stripped off for your sake. And on that hill, love meets death to end the game of scorekeeping forever. So the question that I want to propose this morning is this. If we're all to die later, 
Why not learn to die sooner? If life's on the other side of the wreckage, why not learn to be wrecked? Or better yet, to see the wreckage that is, in fact, already there, that others can see, and that others might even be waiting for you to admit. Others that might be married to you. Or to me. <laughs> because why would we do this? Why, 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 why? You know, if, if, if life's a game of scorekeeping, why not say ourselves, game over? God says game over. Let's just say game over. Why not? Because you have to learn how to lose. You have to learn how to die. If you want to be alive, okay? That's what Jesus says, and that's also what Wilco says. And we're going to see Wilco in action right now. I think you have the lyrics on your sheet, too. Thanks for coming. See you tomorrow night.
Uh, that song, I uh, believe in charismatic terms, is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it comes directly out of Jesus' mouth. When Paul Zoll came uh, almost two years ago to preach at my institution as, as the rector of Christ Church, and he, in his sermon there, and when it sort of got to the charge part of it, he had, he had one thing, just one thing to say about the ministry that I had been called to, and uh, there's a lot happening at Christ Church with four services and college ministry and homeless ministry and just things bustling everywhere, uh, arts ministry and things happening all over the place in which I felt, okay, I've been called to this ministry to lead and what am I to do? And Paul had one thing to say. And it's the one thing that has sustained me in these two years and will sustain me until I go to the right or wrong kind of graveyard. And the one thing that Paul said is, Paul, do as little as possible. (laughs) Do as little as possible. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the vestry or the bishop felt about this tidy piece of advice. But it's an anointed piece of advice, not advice. It's an anointed gospel truth. Because it has the clear mark of God's foolish wisdom. Do as little as possible. You've got to learn how to lose. You've got to learn how to die if you want to be alive. Okay. Now, if Wilco's a little too lowbrow, then then look to T.S. Eliot for the same game over message. And I was so taken when I first read the four quartets uh, that Christy and I and Hillary was just a tiny girl. We got on a plane and went to England, and I wanted to go to Little Gidding which is the church that uh, makes up part of, of, of one of the quartets. And uh, I was just enamored by this piece of work and did a whole semester independent study in the seminary about it. And Elliot says the same thing. He says, in my end is my beginning. In my end is my beginning. And in this section of Four Quartets, he tells us the same message, that if we're to be restored, raised, Our sickness must grow worse. If we're to have life beyond the wreck, the wreck must happen. The wounded surgeon plies the steel. This is obviously Jesus that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease. Our only health is the disease. If we obey the dying nurse, who is uh, the church here, whose constant care is not to please, give us seven steps for life, but to remind us of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital endowed by the ruined millionaire. That's Adam, fallen, ruined. Wherein if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care, the Father's care, that will not leave us but prevents or goes before us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in mental wires. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which 
the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. Here's where Herod's hunger is satisfied. The dripping blood are only drink. The bloody flesh are only food. In spite of what we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood, again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. See, here's the, uh, I, I think, the most brilliant and yet most gracious, uh, the most utterly uh, oxymoronic stroke of God's wisdom is that the only thing that cannot be taken away from you, the only thing that every single person in the world possesses, the only thing that is our universal birthright, is the only thing that God uses to save us. And that is, of course, our death. Our birthright is our death right. And that's all God needs. Isn't that thoughtful of Him? <laughs> Here's a final word from Capon. For Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reform the reformable, not to improve the improvable. As long as you are struggling to be alive in your own eyes, and to the precise degree that your struggles are holy, just, and good, you will resent the apparent indifference to your pains that God makes, the effortlessness of death, effortlessness of death, the touchstone of justification. Only when you are finally able to admit that you are dead will you be able to stop balking at grace. There are so many books out there that will give you steps for your life. There's only one step. It is admittedly a terrifying step, Capon says. You will cry and kick and scream before you take it, because it means putting yourself out of the only game you know. For your comfort, though, I can tell you three things. First, it is only one step. Second, it is not a step out of reality into nothing, but a step from fiction into fact. And third, it will make you laugh out loud at how short the trip home was. It wasn't a trip at all. You were already there. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified. I am not going to be crucified. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You are dead and raised. So grace rests in the end of scorekeeping. There is no more to be done. There's just life to be lived, you see. There are referees to be teased. There are children to be played with. There are men and women to be loved. There are pirate costumes to be donned day after tomorrow on Halloween and to keep them on through Christmas to Ash Wednesday and on to Good Friday. And why not throw Pentecost in for the fun of it? 
Because like grace and through grace, we can poke some fun, you see, at the whole notion of scorekeeping, as uh, Dean Limehouse did uh, this past week when I asked him how he's doing on the telephone. He said, oh, about a C plus. And considering the human condition, that's a remarkably good grade. I'm pleased to report I'm up to a C plus today. And although we may wish to continue to keep checking the scoreboard, the truth of the matter is God is not keeping score. Our love affair with the law, thankfully, does prove fatal. But that's nothing to be afraid of. That's what saves you. It's game over. And now that the game is over, you may rest in peace.